Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I, I have the privilege of serving at our church as a lead pastor. And uh, we have been working our way through a sermon series on the book of James, which is a letter that the younger brother of Jesus wrote to the church scattered all over the region near where the church began in Jerusalem and spreading outward. Um, it's a letter written from the perspective of somebody who didn't just know Jesus as his Savior, but grew up in the same house with him, watching what his brother was like, living out the perfect human life. And if you've ever had issues with your older siblings, um, imagine having Jesus as your older brother. So here is, this morning, our text is on a topic called favoritism, and I just love that picture. So I thought I'd make the title slide like one of those motivational posters. Um, have you ever felt like the other bird? <laughs> I, I almost spit out the drink in my mouth the first time I saw this picture. Uh, and this picture captures pretty well why favoritism hurts. Now, there was a, I saw this presented as a motivational poster on another website, and the, the tagline was, the only people who don't believe in favoritism are the ones getting it. Okay? So, so the bird on the left has no problems with life. It's the one under his mama's claws. It's like, yeah, life is not so rosy. Do you guys, uh, let, let's walk through the text, and then, and then I want to ask you a question. James 2, verses 1 through 4 reads like this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Do you guys uh, remember watching Sesame Street when you grew up? Did, did everybody watch Sesame Street growing up? Isn't it amazing that that show is still on and like our kids are still... That just makes me feel really weird that it's still around uh, and do you remember this segment that they would sometimes do? Right? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong, right? You, you know that? Remember? Now, you have to be almost blind not to get the... <laughs> Some of them are just a little too obvious, right? But the idea behind this little bit on Sesame Street was to teach children in early development how to do pattern recognition, how to spot that certain things fit and certain things don't. And, and I think it's an important life skill to pick up because you do want to know that a $5 bill is different than a $1 bill. Those are important patterns to recognize. But I think we end up carrying that forward into the rest of our lives almost indiscriminately. That we begin to figure out that the world we live in, whether we like it or not, is ruled by patterns. 
And after a while, the sharp person starts to figure out how these patterns work, and they figure out what they look like, they match it against the pattern of this world, and they realize, oh, okay, I know where I fit in this world. I know where, and you know, this is what we do. You walk into any room, instinctively, the first thing you're going to do, probably, is figure out some kind of pecking. Where do I fit in this room? And so you will probably use whatever pattern you most recognize in yourself, the thing you value in yourself. If it's intelligence, then you're going to have a radar of who's the smart people in this room, who are the people who are not so bright, and you'll gravitate towards them. If you're attractive, you'll know right away, I'm the third most attractive person in this room, at least according to my humble opinion. And so you got that all figured out. You're, you're creating what chickens do in the yard all the time, a pecking order, right? Who ranks higher? Who ranks lower? And where do I fit into that entire spectrum? This is pattern recognition, and it's instinctive for us. We look at the world in terms of patterns and where we fit in that pattern. Would you guys agree with that? And that's not like every one of us is doing it all the time, but it's so subtle, it's so under the, the layer of our consciousness that it's happening even when we don't always acknowledge that it's happening. It's one of the reasons, for example, that people decide they will go to this place or that place. They will go to hang out at this bar or that bar or go to this church or that church. In fact, if you look at the way people decide what bar they'll hang out at and what church they'll go to, the psychological framework is almost identical. It's almost identical. So that, that makes me laugh because people in the pulpit are always railing against bars, but people choose bars and churches on exactly the same psychological process, don't they? Where do I feel comfortable? Where do I fit in? Where am I right in the middle where, where I'm kind of like most of these people and I have some standing in this place? We also realize that we don't fit the pattern everywhere. And <clears throat> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I come across a photo trying to make my slides and it just makes me laugh and I have to put it in there whether it fits or not. It just... That's such an adorable picture. <clears throat> and um, I love the kid on this right side, especially because he's giving a look like, dude, what are you doing here? Like, the other two guys are whatever. I'm Batman. I'm, I'm, be you, you know? But the last guy's like, how come you're not Batman? <laughs> I think we realize that in certain places, we don't fit. And in other places, we do. And so by instinct, we gravitate towards those places and those people where we feel like generally we fit. And we avoid those places and people where we don't. And this really strikes at the heart of what James is talking about. On the surface, it seems like James is talking about elitism and class warfare and the idea that the rich and the poor are treated very differently. And yes, that is absolutely at the heart of this passage. Don't get me wrong. James is addressing that. But I think at a deeper level, James is addressing this basic human instinct to live our entire lives and govern how we relate to other people based on the patterns we see everywhere. I think what James is really addressing is the superficiality of the, the organizations we're part of, of the churches and communities we build. Because we can see the pattern, but the crime, the sin, is that we sometimes don't go past the pattern, past what we see on the outside, to really behold one another. <clears throat> now, when you live that way, basically what I see in you on the outside is what I choose to see in you forever. 
another thing starts to happen. We stop seeing people as people and we start seeing them as resources or assets. So that the next step, how do I turn that off? Did I just hit, there you go. The next step then is, well, let me turn it back on. Maybe Robin's plotting, okay, I may not be Batman, but which one of these Batmans is the real Batman? Who do I latch onto? Who will slingshot me forward in life? And who's going to be dead weight dragging me down? I know that most of us have been trained well enough, raised right, so we're not going to actually do that calculation out loud. Like, you know, I would go to your birthday party, but you just don't. You're not going to help me very much get ahead in life. And so thank you, but, you know, um, no. Maybe a man proposes marriage to you and say, I really appreciate the affection and admiration, but, like, I'm like an 8 and you're like a 3.5 on a good day and... You're just going to hold me back, and I might probably trade up later anyway. So you know what? Thanks, but uh, let's just be friends. Now, that sounds like, whoa, nobody's like that. Are they? Well, not, outside, not out loud or not. I mean, what kind of jerk would you be if you said that stuff out loud? But sometimes in your inside voice. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes in your inside voice, like it or not, that's the way that we instinctively think about people. Who's a good person? Somebody who's going to bless me. Somebody who, my association with them is going to elevate my game, bring me up a level. I wouldn't mind being seen in public with these people. I like pulling up to their house and knowing I'm a personal friend. I'm a guest in their home. I get to hang with them socially and not just at work or not just at church. We're buds. And we're doing a calculus that God hates. The way we relate to people reveals the value we place on those people. Do you understand that? It's as if what we're doing is going around putting, we have a set of little orange stickers, little circle stickers, and we're walking around going, you get one, and you get one, and then you get one. Uh, No, I only have like 10, so you go over there. And you get one, and no, not you. Uh, Let's see if I have one left at the end. I might give you one. It's like that, isn't it? I mean, you, you want to know how, when this becomes most overt is when you're planning a wedding and you can only invite 100 guests. Suddenly, you're having friend tryouts. Like, all right, we're addition. Let me see. Are you a $150 plate friend? You're going to be on the B list. We're going to hold you in the pen. We'll see. We've got, we got some obvious no-brainers first to get off. And do you see what happens there? I mean, we're, at this church, we talk about what's real, right? I know no one claims to do that stuff, but when you got 150 bucks a plate, not, not, ain't every one of your friends going to come to a $150 plate meal. And so you start figuring out who is worth it and who is not. That's one of the most overt settings in which this happens, but that calculus is running in the, in the processor of our hearts almost all the time. Who's going to get me forward and who's going to hold me back? The sin is looking at people in terms of whether they're worth it or not, rather than seeing the worth of a person through the eyes of Jesus Christ who loves them. I think that's why favoritism, though it is instinctive and natural and universal in the human experience, grieves the heart of God so much, is that it assigns worth to people on a totally different basis than he does. In other words, the way we assign value to people is not really at all the way God assigns value to people. Now, you have to understand, leading up to this point, James seems to be all over the place. 
But he's really saying only a few very simple things. I really appreciated Pastor Frank's message last Sunday. It's still been ringing around, bouncing around up here in my head and in my heart all week. This idea that holiness and worship is a relationship. It's a person. It's not this act that we do. And I think that's one of the compelling messages of the book of James. I think that's compelling and it's right because... James didn't grow up with a guy who headed a religion. He grew up with his older brother who was the religion. Nobody had to tell James holiness is a guy. It's a person. It's a way of living. It's a relationship. It's obvious for how many verses, I mean, most of chapter 2 is taken up with James addressing this one issue. And it's obvious that this was not some hypothetical problem in the church, but this was going on, and probably James, on his visits to these scattered people, saw that this was happening with his own eyes. He was grieved because he'd walk into church, and it was very much like, do you guys know about the Salvation Army? Anybody know the name of the person who founded the Salvation Army? This guy, somebody. Okay. William Booth, that's right. So, he was a part of the Broad Street uh, Methodist Church. And he had such a heart for lost people who had no power or wealth in society. But it was clear to him that the church he belonged to did not really have a concern for such people, but they were really an upper-middle-class or upper-class church. And so the way the church was structured, if you can believe this, is people who donated a lot of money got reserved pews. In fact, their names were on it. They were the big givers, so they got the best seats in front on padded pews, really nice. Some churches, blows my mind, are still doing this stuff. You give a lot of money, you get a reserved seat right here, box seats at church, season tickets. (laughs) And then the poor did not even get to come through the same door. There was another entrance where someone would look at you and you're like, uh, no, you go around back. And they would come into the building and there was this big screen and you would have to sit in little benches without even backs to the chairs. You'd just sit like this, back aching, and there would be a screen so that you could hear the preacher but you couldn't even see him because they wanted you out of sight and out of smell range. You could still come to church. I mean, after all, we're Christians, you know. But you got to sit over there in the bleachers. I think this is what James saw and it deeply wounded his heart because he saw in it something totally foreign to what the church of Jesus Christ should be like. And so he tells a story. He borrows a page from his older brother's book, and he tells a story to teach a principle. And he starts with, if you were doing it in a barn big, so two guys walk into a church. Right? I mean, that's really the, the nature of this kind of story. And everybody's like, yeah? Well, okay, one guy is blinged out. You could tell, Fortune 500 CEO, he's got everything, you know, um, all the, the, the accessories, the clothing, the shoes, the hair, everything. And everyone knows this dude's got money. And then another guy walks in, not so much. Now, you've got to understand, in those days, only the very wealthy would, would be able to wear clothing other people had made. Everybody else, which is like 90% of the population or more, made homemade clothing stitched together with leftover fragments, remnants of cloth from other things, and they didn't have laundry machines or servants to do their wash. And when you've only got one change of clothes, you're naked on laundry day, so you've got to stay in, which means you don't do laundry all that often because you've got to make a living. 
So most people, the common folk, their clothes were dirty and they smelled bad, just like a college student's jeans. I, I read about one guy who did an experiment, which is also another quote for lazy, and he wore the same pair of jeans for two and a half years in college. He said he would take them off and they would stand up on the floor by themselves. <laughs> um, that's kind of how it was. When you don't wash your clothes, they smell bad. They look dirty. That's just how it is, especially because they didn't have denim, which hides a lot of things. It was all like this basically off-white fabric, linen, things like that. And so he says, here's two guys walk into a church, and it's no-brainer. I mean, you can tell who's got assets and who's got, who doesn't, okay? And now here's the thing that troubles James in the story. He goes, so far, that's the only thing we know about these two men. We don't know anything about their true worth or character. All we have is a very good guess at their net worth, not their true worth. I can tell who's got money and who doesn't, but beyond that, who knows? Maybe the rich guy's the biggest jerk you're ever going to meet. Maybe the poor guy is a, a saint, but you don't know that. And yet here's how the story unfolds. On the basis of just that surface observation, those two men receive completely different welcomes when they come to the church. One guy, the, the rich guy, everyone goes, hey, hey, come on in here, you know? And, and they say, why don't you take the good seats up front? Oh, I know these are the big givers, these are the box seats, but I don't think they're coming today. You go ahead. The poor guy, they go, hey, just wherever you are, just keep standing there. Don't make a spectacle. Don't draw attention. We don't want visitors to think our church is comprised mainly of people like you. So just kind of be out of the way. And when he says sit by my footstool, which is what other translations say. It's saying either stand still and don't draw attention or be out of sight. Get down low by my feet. When someone walks in our building, we don't want them to see the likes of you. We'd rather they see the likes of him. That's the kind of church we're trying to, that's the image we're projecting. Upper middle class, well-to-do, tax-paying, help your kids with their homework and go to all their little league games type people. That's what we want to be. We change our oil every 3,000 miles. Our teeth are in good shape. That's who we are. The poor guy and the rich guy get a totally different welcome based on how they appear on the outside. Now, let me give you a story that kind of helps bring this to life for me. I remember once I went to speak at a retreat. It was a church that I didn't know anybody except the host pastor. I had met him at a conference, and he asked me to come out and speak. So I have no relationship with this church whatsoever. It was in another state in the Midwest, and this was – how do I put this? They were a kind of inexperienced church. They were just getting started. They really didn't know how to run stuff. So the guy gave me vague directions, and I got totally lost in the middle of these cornfields. I got at least six or seven good sermon illustrations out of the journey to this retreat about my own heart and character and being lost. This was in the pre-GPS days. So I'm already a little bit miffed when I get there. Part of the reason is because the, the few directions they actually gave me, it says turn left, and I was supposed to turn right, and it cost me like an hour of drive time. So I'm, I'm not in the best mood when I arrive, which is not a good state to be the speaker in. And I pull into the parking lot, and I'm like, there's no signs there's just a bunch of weird, nondescript buildings, 
And like, now where do I go? I finally got to the dumb camp, and there's like 80 buildings and no signs. So, so what do I do? And it was one of those retreats where there, were, there was no linens provided. So I'm lugging out my suitcase. Pastor said, bring a, a large sleeping bag, bring a pillow, bring your gym clothes because we want you to play ball with the kids. And so I, I've got all these bags, a bigger briefcase than usual because I had to bring all these handouts. And I'm struggling with these three bags. And as I get out of the car, I see up this very steep sidewalk on a hill, there's a building and about 10 guys sitting on the steps just chilling. And I could tell their old friends are having a good time. They're talking. And I get out of the car, look at all these bags, and I'm seeing them. And I figure, all right, they look vaguely Asian-ish. This is an Asian church. I'm going to take my chances. So I, I struggle all the way up that long sidewalk. And they don't, I could, you, you can't not see me, okay? I mean, <laughs> there's only the one side. They're all facing there. But they're studiously like whatever, you know. But when I walked right up to them, they couldn't ignore me anymore. So one of them's like, hold, hold up, hold up. Who's, who's this dude? Check him out. And I said, hey, hi, guys. I'm Dave. <laughs> they, they looked at me kind of like, yeah, good for you. Congratulations for being Dave. And then I just said, hey, um, can you tell me where I register for this retreat? You guys are part of that church. So they go, yeah, yeah. And one guy pauses in this conversation long enough to murmur, I think it's over that way. They're going to go right back to their conversation. I'm standing there with all my bags. And I'm like, yeah, I got some good. I, so I'm thinking my mind would change with all the rebuking sermons. Um, I carry a few of those with me, you know, just in case I, I'm in a bad mood. And I'm about to walk away. One of the guys goes, wait, are you like the guest speaker? And I'm like, well, yes. Yes, I am. All of a sudden, it's like, I don't know what happened, but everybody stands up. And I'm like, what, what just happened? Did I sprout a, a crown? What? And they're just bowing like crazy. One of the guys runs down and grabs my... I'm like, dude, I got it. And he wouldn't even let me carry my own bag. He wrestled it out of my hands. And I got Sherpas now following me behind. I got guides leading me in front. And they, I get a 10-man escort all the way to the res- registration building. And they find their pastor and go, the speaker's here. And they're so excited. And listen, I was grateful for the about face. The fleshy side of me is like, yeah, you better recognize, punks. You better... I ain't just some chump walking in here. I'm the speaker. And you, <laughs> I, I, the fleshly side of me was thinking that a little bit. Like, <laughs> you, you, you know who I am now, don't you? But here's the thing. As grateful as I was for all the help and all the about face, what grieved my heart was the way I first got welcomed is probably the experience of every visitor to that church. What I realized was your true welcome is not seen in the way you fawn over the honored guest but in the genuine way you receive every guest. And until they knew who I was, they treated me exactly the way they treated every stranger who probably walked into their building. I don't think it's possible to do a selfless thing with selfish motives. See, the problem with the honor that the people in the story paid to the rich visitor is that they didn't have the rich visitor's needs in mind at all. They weren't trying to help him or honor him. They were trying to help themselves. It's the same set of motivators that make vendor after vendor contribute to an $80,000 swag bag at the Oscars. Do you think any of these actors need $80,000 worth of free handouts at a party to celebrate and self-congratulate all night long? 
Of all the people in our society who don't need $80,000 worth of freebies, it's the celebrities who make $20 million a film. Yet why are these vendors bending over backwards to give rich people more free stuff? It's not because they love the rich. It's because they love what the rich turn around and do for them. And in the end, there's so much false honor that is paid to people because we believe they are going to help us move forward. And so we pay them the compliment of our friendship, our interest, our attention, hoping that there will be a good return on that investment one day. That if this materializes into a really great friendship, you're exactly the kind of gal I want to be friends with. You're the kind of dude I want to hang out with and watch the game with. I don't know you very well yet, but I'm hoping this goes somewhere because I really like you. And there are other people we say, you know, I hope that you stop trying to follow me. Can you go talk to them? (laughs) Why are you following me? And there are people like that in our lives. And what James is acknowledging, what he's addressing is, is the honor you pay other people coming from a heart that sees people the way Jesus sees them? Or is it a calculus, a social calculus, which James then calls evil? Now, so far, we're just trying to convict of sin because that's what James opens with. He's trying to say, look, this is sin. Let's stop calling it something else. Let's stop calling it societal norms and all that. It's just sin. It's wrong to look at people and assign value in this shallow way. And we do need to do that. We can't just bypass the conviction of sin. But there is hope here because look at what he says. He He begins to explain this is why this is sinful. Sometimes we hear over and over, this is sin, but why, why is it sin? What's wrong with calculating who can help me move forward and, and who will drag me down? In the same way we do time management, shouldn't I do a little relationship management? If I latch onto you, it's like bringing a stray dog home and you're going to be like, gum stuck on my shoe. I can't ever get you off because I was the first nice person who paid attention to you. Now you're like, I'm yours now. Where are we going to go today? And we, we stress out over the possibility that if I'm just a little nice to the one person that nobody else is being nice to, I might have to bring you home and you'll follow me everywhere. And James says that social calculus calculus grieves the heart of Jesus Christ. And in verse 1, he shows us, he tells us why favoritism is offensive. Now, by the way, that's a pool in China. (laughs) You want to see visible signs of class difference. Rich people swim on which side do you think? (laughs) Look how crowded. I mean, that's not like they're all checking out this rich dude. They're being pressed right up to the rope by everybody else who's in the water. That doesn't even look like swimming pool water. That looks like a lake. Okay? I saw that and I think this is, <laughs> this is exactly what God hates to see. Is that certain people are accorded so much more than others when that is not at all the way God feels about the people he's created. And so James says about his older brother. Think about this. What has to happen in your life to call your own flesh and blood brother my glorious Lord, if ever there was an acknowledgement of Jesus' divinity, it comes from his own flesh and blood brother. There was a time in James's life when he did not recognize who Jesus was. There are, there are accounts in the gospel that clearly show some of the last people to become believers were his own family. But eventually they were saved, and gloriously so. I think it's hardest for you to really listen to the ministry of the people you've known since they were in diapers. 
Now, James couldn't go, well, yeah, but you were such a jerk to me. He's like, yeah, but you were so nice to me all our childhood. There's nothing you could say to Jesus. And yet, you don't go from you're a nice older brother to you're my God and Savior. Something profound happened in James's heart so that he was able to see his own brother through a completely different set of eyes. And I think that's one of the great gifts that God gives us. A part of the process of being saved is not simply that your eternal destiny is rerouted, but that God gives you a whole different set of lenses to look at everything. He helps you understand the world you live in through a completely new set of rules, and that's one of the ways that the process of change starts to happen. And one of the reasons that favoritism is so offensive to God is because it clouds the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, glory is one of those words we throw around a lot in the church, but we're not always sure exactly what it means. If, if your friend or your child came up to you and said, uh, what's glory? What would you say? You'd be like, you know, glory is like that glorious aspect of God. What would you say, honestly? Like, glory is one of those words. It's a little hard to define. It means a lot of things, but let me give you at least one clear sense of what God's glory consistently has meant in the lives of God's people. And we find that in the life of Moses. Throughout the entire life and ministry of Moses, we hear references made constantly to God's glory. Okay, God's glory. And whenever this, this glory of God was referenced, it referred to God's visible, audible, olfactory. I mean, you feel it every. The only thing you don't do is taste it, okay? But you feel it in the ground as it vibrates. When God was present among his people, it was said that his glory rested with them. So one way to understand the word God's glory is God's glory equals his real and felt presence among his people. God's glory is not just some attribute where we go, look how shiny he is. Man, dang, I can hardly look. God is so glorious. It's not just something that is about him alone. It's about the way that it feels when he is with his people. The glory of God, in other words, is seen in the church when God's presence is felt in the church. So whenever you have left church thinking, you know, I really feel like God showed up today. I really feel like in that, from the very first song, I was with God. God's glory filled the church. Whenever you walk away going, well, I'm glad I have those friends. It was kind of funny. It was kind of good today. But I don't really walk away feeling the glow of I was in the presence of the divine then you've missed out somehow on the glory of God at church that day. Because God's glory is God's real and felt presence with his people. Now, now here's where we're going with that. There was one time when, when God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments, and Moses was a little stressed out because he's like, well, I know you're giving me all these laws, but I can already tell you right now, just looking at them, um, these fools down there, they broke all of these. In fact, they're breaking them right now. So he's a little stressed because he's like, God's going, here are the ten laws, the most important rules. He's going, oh, man. <laughs> are there maybe another five, like in <laughs> Mel Brooks's movie, maybe another five that are easier? Because those people, they've already, they're, they're experts at breaking every last one of these rules. And he's stressed out. He's going, God, are you, 
look, I'm going to take these rules. We're going to go down there and they're going to violate every last one of them with zeal. Are you still going to be with us when they do that? And so there was a sense in which God could tell Moses needed reassurance. He needed comfort, encouragement. And so what does God do? He says, all right, listen, just to, to let you know how I feel about you all, I want you to hide over here. I'm going to pass in front of you. I'm going to allow my glory to pass in front of you. You're going to have to shield your eyes, but you're going to know what it feels like when I'm in the house. <laughs> right there. And that's what happens. And it says here that the glory of God, and this is the way the Israelites would have seen and experienced the glory, just God filling. Wouldn't you love it if you're pulling up to Hoffman Estates High School and you saw that just like some Indiana Jones kind of stuff. You're like, dang, I'm going to the right church, man, because I drove past all these churches, ain't no fire coming. You know, wouldn't you be like, that would be such a nice sign, visible sign like that, like, yeah, that's our church right there. And I would hope on the way in you see that same fire in building after building. That's what Israel got to see. When God was in the house, you knew it. Okay? There wasn't like, is God here today? <laughs> you know it. Some of us have family members like that. When they're home, you know it because it's just loud. It's whatever, right? He's boisterous. You know when someone's home. That's how God is. And it says in Exodus 34, 5 to 6, that the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh, his personal name. Not the Lord, but this is my name, like Dave. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord. And listen, even though this is a terrifying presence, listen to what the message of our God is. The God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. That blows my mind. Every single time a person encounters God, their first response is terror. But when you see the things God says again and again and again to his people, it's always, don't be afraid. I am with you wherever you go. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am quick to forgive. I am slow to anger. There are a thousand forgivenesses for those who repent a thousand times. This is our God. Every single time we think he's going to crush us under the weight of his judgment, he loves us under the freedom of his grace and undeserved mercy. This is what God is like so that when God is present with people, that's what it feels like to see God's glory is that we are received the way God receives us. If that is not what it feels like to be at church, God's glory will not be seen by those who need to see it. And this is what James is pointing out. He's not just calling his brother the glorious Lord. That's the first and only time he says something like that directly about Jesus. And he's given us, the ESV I think has a better translation. It says, he is Jesus, our Lord of what? Glory. If glory is the real presence of God, Jesus is the epitome of God wanting to be with us, hanging out down here. He is God made flesh. He is God with us. And that's why it grieves God's heart when somebody comes to church because everywhere else we go in this world, we expect to be treated based on our station in life. I walk into a room and I know that if I walk into a supermodel convention, 
guys, you know, the, the dudes in the Calvin Klein, pow, 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 six pack, eight pack, whatever. I walk there, I'm not going to feel real confident. I'm going to be like, hey, guys, how's it going? Fist bump, you know. And it's like walking in a room full of living mannequins. You're like, dude, man. I know how that's going to be. I know what I look like. I have eyeballs. I know what they look like. When I walk in, I ain't expecting all the girls to be like, mm, look what just walked in. They're like, oh, ew, ew. <laughs> Go stand by the buffet, okay? I know that about myself. So everywhere I walk in this world, I expect to be treated a certain way based on my station. I've got a 2004 Honda Accord, the giant rust-marked scrape on the front, and a half a bra on the hood that covers a giant rust mark underneath. When I hang out with some youth pastors, I feel like the baller because they're in really junky cars. They pull up and they're like, hold on, can you just wait a second to make sure my car starts before you go home? I'm like, yeah, I can do that for you, brother. I have jumper cables for those guys, not for my own car. So I feel good when I'm with them. But when I pull up to the valet at a five-star hotel, I'm always like, all right, here, here's the keys. And then just try to sneak in because I don't want people to be like, oh, that's your ride? That's your... Did you ever notice Valley's always parked the really nice cars in front and then cars like mine get put in the back of the garage? It takes a half hour to dig it up. And I know that's the way the world works. I know that every other place I set foot in, I will be treated exactly as the world and the value it's given me will dictate. But don't you think it's right for people to walk into God's house and expect that in this one place in our society, in this one building, in this one gathering of people, finally, those rules do not apply here. That this will be the one force field protected zone where the garbage of that out there can't follow us in here. Is it not right for people to expect that those who are beleaguered and belittled and ignored and disregarded every other place they go can walk into a church and expect at least here someone will see my face. Someone will realize I have a name, I have a story, I have value, I have a future. Someone. Don't you think it's right that people should expect that in this one little weird pocket of our society? And I think they are, by and large, getting that. But there's always room to grow. The Christ-likeness of our church will be, in large part, determined by the way we receive the people he is longing to receive. And here's the great thing about it. Jesus is not just our example. He's the one who empowers this change of heart. Because when we first came to Jesus, we came on those exact same terms. There was not one of us who was more savable than the others. None of us came into Jesus' presence with AP credit. That's on my brain lately because I'm paying hundreds of dollars for my kids to have AP credit. Advanced placement, right? I came in already a sophomore. See, none of us came to Jesus like that. My kids are the children of a pastor. They don't have a single advantage over anybody else's kids. Not one. By God's grace, I hope they don't have any handicaps. <laughs> but 
Nobody gets AP credit coming to Jesus. We all come filthy. We all come in need of welcome from somebody who doesn't see us and ascribe value to us the way the world has. That's why in the presence of Jesus, everybody's got a fair shake. Everybody. Everybody is worth something to Jesus Christ. And when we realize that about ourselves, when we see that in Jesus, he begins to reshape the way we look at other people. And if we can't see other people in that light, usually it's a sure tip-off that the way you value yourself is not the way Jesus has valued you. You're still trying to find your worth in your net worth or in your waistline or in something else. Let me close by saying this. In Leviticus 19.15, here's what part of the admission of Moses to his people is. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. This is a theme that is true of God and his heart throughout Scripture. In multiple places in the Bible, it tells us that our God never shows favoritism. That doesn't mean he gives extra credit to the poor. What it means is whether you're rich or poor, that is not the first or last thing God sees about you. In this verse, what he's saying is, look, don't give anybody special favors. Just treat people right. And this is what I love about our God. He's not always beaten up on the rich. Some of the loneliest people in our society are the rich because everywhere they walk, all anyone sees is their money precedes them. Dude, that, that dude just pulled up in a Lambo. And that's all anyone ever sees. They're getting hit up for money all the time by relatives, by friends, by every good cause in the world. And yet nobody sees anything past their money. And so this is the, the encouragement I want to give to us as a church. Let's not do what James says is evil, this discriminating among ourselves, figuring out where do you fit in in the hierarchy? Where are you in the pecking order? Let's just stop doing that altogether. Because that social calculus is evil in the eyes of God. Instead, let's begin at the beginning where God that we know sees worth in every person. It doesn't matter what they speak like, what they look like, what they smell like. Every person has worth in God's eyes. That means we don't discriminate against those who are above us, hating on them and fawning over them in public while hating on them behind their backs. We don't go, oh my God, that looks so cute on you today. You look so cute. Whatever she thinks she is, you know. We don't do that. We don't do that. Christians should not be haters. But we also don't look down on people. Like, whatever. How'd you get in here? We don't do that to people either. But what we do is we look at them the way God looks at them and say, who are you? What's your story? And, and just, to, just so you don't brush us off, because a lot of people say, you know, I'm not prejudiced. I'm not stuck up. But this, none of this is relevant to me. Well, let me just challenge you. Maybe you're right. I think there are a lot of people in this church who don't see things that way. But let me just ask you before you're too quick to move on. Let me ask you one last question. How many really close, deep relationships do you have with people who are way outside your station in life. 
People that you genuinely are friends with, you love, you fellowship with, you have them to your home, but you will never engage in an intellectual conversation where you're both equals. You'll have to pick up the tab on almost every other meal you eat because you just got way more money than them. Or you're going to feel really insecure being at their house because they just have things you'll never have. Or their sexual orientation doesn't agree with yours. Their ethnicity is not something you're familiar with. And we're not making value judgments. I mean, if you're a Democrat, how many Republican friends do you have and vice versa? How many people are you really good friends with who don't recycle? Uh, let's just, I mean, all the ways we slice and dice humanity. I'm not making value judgments about those, but I'm asking you, do you see how we know this Batman and Robin picture very well? That as open as we are, when you look at the real story of our lives, we pretty much stay in that club all our lives. We don't really, and here's the other thing. Not only who are you friends with, how many of those people who are radically different than you are instinctively drawn to you? They seek you out. They want to be by you because they feel safe around you. They feel valued and loved around you. Isn't that one of the ways we can just say, God, if I want to know, are you at work in my life? That's one of the ways we can see that. Is are the people who are far outside of our comfort zone instinctively drawn to us the way that the prostitutes and the tax collectors were drawn to Jesus like a moth to a flame? I pray that this will be the thing people say about harvest for decades is that they will say, I've been to a lot of churches, but when I walked in there, I suddenly got to take off all my labels and I got to just be me. And those people saw me and I was welcomed like a human being. Amen. Let's bow in prayer together. Sometimes it is the case that a person walks into a church for the first time, and you know how scary a feeling that is, don't you? You remember. You walk into a place you don't know, and you're nervous, you're wondering if you'll like it, if people will like you, and there are times when people walk in desperate for this place to become home because they need a place. just need somewhere where they belong. And out there in the world, they can't find a friend. just don't fit anywhere. And they walk in here hoping that maybe among God's people, there will be real welcome. I think we should pray together that every one of us will be shaped by the heart of Jesus Christ. And that this will be one of those churches in our world where when they walk in that way, that's what they'll find. So why don't we just pray that for our church right now together. Let's just lift up that prayer. God, make us like this. Show us Change us. Let's pray that now. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.